This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. With me today is elder law attorney, Miss Mary Pyre Powers, founder of the Powers Law Group in West Springfield, Massachusetts. During this podcast, we'll discuss what family members should know or consider if they have a family member residing in a long-term care facility during this COVID-19 pandemic. Mary, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, David. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. You're very welcome. Miss Pyre Powers' bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, as has been widely reported, the COVID-19 pandemic has had particularly harmful effects on seniors and the frail elderly, particularly or moreover those residing in long-term care facilities, for example, skilled nursing facilities uh, or assisted living facilities. As of last week, approximately 4 in 10 COVID-related deaths have occurred in these residences. For example, in my state of Virginia, as of mid-May, approximately 60% of all COVID-19-related deaths have occurred in a skilled nursing facility. Beyond long-term care residents being immunocompromised, federal regulations concerning SNFs, skilled nursing facilities, have once again proven to be inadequate. The question begged here is, what can family members or those with power of attorney or serve as medical proxy can do during the pandemic to protect their frail senior or frail family members living in these facilities? particularly if the facility is locked down or preventing family visits. With me again to discuss uh, these questions is Elder Law Attorney Ms. Mary Pyre Powers. Before beginning, I will recognize I probably, if not in fact, should have scheduled this topic several weeks ago. So with that, Mary, on background, I'll go into the questions. However, do you have a, did you have a, a comment relative to my intro? I, no, I was just going to say that, that, as you and I have discussed before, that this is certainly an uncharted territory, and these questions are relevant to what's going on now. Now that we know that we could face these pandemics again, and it might be coming a, a wave of the future, we need to be aware of, of what we should be asking. Um, and the nursing homes, I think, were not prepared. And certainly mm -hmm. one of the questions that many of us have is how come they didn't have these drills or practices in place. But for right now, we have to look at what we can do for, for our elders and our family members and then deal with the question as to how or why they weren't prepared at another time. No, absolutely. I agree. So that's a that's a topic for another conversation. Uh, and you're right. Uh, this pandemic doesn't seem to be Will won't uh, will will persist rather for quite some while, and uh, we should expect others. Uh, so this conversation uh, should have legs for quite some time. So let's go to the questions I prepared. Uh, in context of the pandemic, what should uh, family members know about the long-term care facility in which their relative uh, resides? And I will say, um, most people may know that there's a good deal of federal guidance is out. The CDC, for example, has out a guidance uh, on facilities. 
specifically, and I will post this or the link thereof, uh, formerly CDC's guidance um, titled COVID-19 Guidance for Shared or Congregate Housing, which they um, define quite broadly, including apartments, condos, student uh, housing, and then as well uh, congregate housing, specifically regarding those seniors living in assisted living and elsewhere. So again, the question, what generally should members know about uh, a long-term facility in which their relatives reside? Well, I think n- number one is how is their facility communicating with family members about their procedures? And one of the biggest issues that I have heard from individuals around here um, is communication. And if there's no communication, that's going to lead to more stress and, and heartache. So how, how will the facility communicate with family members is key. The other very important uh, factor is what procedures do they have in place for um, testing employees um, and other healthcare professionals that go into the facility, whether it's an occupational therapist, a physical therapist, the nurse practitioner, um, and, and then how also are they testing residents and how are they, what, what is their plan? Are they segregating residents by floor, by section, um, and, and what the procedure is for keeping the residents who have tested negative or who have recovered, what is their procedure for keeping them continually safe? So those are some of, of the beginning questions. I think that a very important question is, does the facility have enough protective equipment for their staff? Um, I know that some nursing homes were not prepared for the N95 masks. They don't have enough gowns to have their staff go in and out of rooms. So that's a very important question. Have they gotten the, the proper protective equipment and what is their procedure about changing the equipment on, on a patient-to-patient or day-to-day procedure? Okay, thank you very much. Very helpful. Beyond the long-term care facilities precautions or steps or measures as you just uh, identified, what added or additional steps, if any, can a family member or family caregiver uh, take, uh, and since you noted, I'm assuming one answer would be provide uh, their family member with uh, a mask or masks or gloves mm-hmm. or et cetera to help them protect themselves. I, I think one of the, the difficulties of this is it's for some of the residents who are living in the facilities, they may not really have a full grasp of what's going on. Mm -hmm. So to require the family member to wear a mask may be intimidating or overwhelming. Uh, They may not understand what is going on. So it's important, if you can, to have a video conference conversation with your parents or your family member. Uh, If you can, have a phone conference with your family member to assure them that you're there and that wearing the mask and and listening to the rules are are important, Um, that can prove difficult because, you you know, some of my clients or the children have said to me, there's very, it's very difficult to communicate with someone who has Alzheimer's or dementia to a point where they can't communicate. Uh, One of the other issues is initially the facilities weren't set up to have Zoom conferences and they weren't set up to... Um, uh, have phone conferences, and it's really, I I believe, most of it has been through, initially through staff, 
who would allow family members to communicate with their um, their phones and FaceTime, uh, to bring their phones into their rooms and to be able to guide some of those conversations. So one, trying to be able to communicate with your, your family member is key. Um, the, the difficult, if, if a client or a, a family member doesn't have a health care proxy or a power of attorney in place, it's going to be difficult to attempt to get that document done when they're in a facility. Having a power of attorney it would be great because it gives you the authority to talk to the staff and find out what's going on and you're not violating privacy rules. Having a healthcare proxy is even more important because it allows you to make those healthcare decisions. The issue is, in order to be able to sign those documents, is the the family member has to be competent and understand what's going on. So, if those documents haven't been been completed, it makes the family's job even harder because you may end up having to go into court to be appointed a guardian or a conservator. And at least here in Massachusetts, our courts are closed except for emergency matters. Um, through through June, so it's very important as you're you're looking at this going forward is to make sure your family members' documents are up to date and that there's been um, a plan put in place as to how much or or what services your family member would want if they're caught in this kind of situation again. Thank you. Very the latter point very important and uh, appreciate your your making it. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. let's go. And again, my question, I'll admit, presume that the family member, the frail elderly member, um, was sufficiently, uh, unimpaired cognitively, uh, mm-hmm. to make the case. I can tell you personally, my mother, uh, who was 89, she, uh, initially refused and had nothing, wanted nothing to do with wearing a mask. And she is a former ED nurse. So, uh, yeah. one might think otherwise. Um, let's go to, um, if, if the, as, as you suggested, if the facility is, um, uh, closed or not accepting, uh, or has visiting restrictions, what options, if any, does a family member have? And let's assume the family member is the POA or healthcare proxy. Uh, are there any options for them if they want to uh, attempt to, uh, visit, uh, with their, with their family member in person? So, so I guess I would look at this in, in, in two ways. I'm not sure having a power of attorney or the medical proxy gives you priority over visitation. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I would believe that if you have a relationship with your family member and there are visiting restrictions, I mean, you have to understand the visiting restrictions are there for a, for a purpose, and it's to protect the, 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 your family member as well as the other family right. members because they're in this congregate living situation and and I hate to use the word trapped but they're trapped there it's not like they can easily leave um, and and we can talk about that if you do want to take them out of the facility but um, so so if if you have a relationship with your family member I would and I believe that most of these facilities are trying to set up um, ways for you to visit through glass um, through a, a Zoom. I know a couple facilities around here have um, have the Zoom in their, their offices and are allowing people to communicate that way. I know I've heard stories from 
uh, clients or their children who have said that they've communicated with their parents through FaceTime, through a staff member's phone, and, and they're grateful for that. So, you know, whether that's the, the family member accepting that, I think we have to accept that if we really want to protect our family members um, who are in these confined environments. Right. Thank you. So clarifying at least on that. So I appreciate it. Let's so considering uh, the extent to which the pandemic has adversely affected long-term care facility residents, as I noted in the intro, uh, how should or should family members evaluate proactively, as you suggested in, in this just uh, a minute ago, how or how should family members evaluate proactively relocating uh, their family member um, I'm assuming it's you would consider it a bad question, an appropriately bad question. So, so you know, when when I was looking at that question, my my immediate thought was, if you're going to move from one facility to another, you, you one want to know what their rate of sure. COVID infections has been, is um, what their rate of of member, I mean, uh, employees who have had COVID who have recovered. Uh, what is their testing procedure? Are people still being tested when they come into work? So if, it, you know, and I don't feel, because we don't have enough or know enough information about how long this virus is going to go on and it's projected to go on through through the fall and the winter, I'm not sure moving someone to another facility is is the solution. If you are going to move, I think, you know, again, the considerations are, what is the communication or how's the communication been between the facility presently and and um, what the the you know what your current facility's communication is what the new facility's communication is and you'd have to probably talk to other family members if you can can locate them the the idea of moving your loved one to another facility Depending on the medical needs, whether they are memory impaired, the, the extent of their dementia or their Alzheimer's, how will your family member react to going to a completely new facility where they don't know anybody and the routine is different? Is that a wise decision? Right. There's no I, right. I, I, you're absolutely correct. Uh, in fact, the last thing you want to do, particularly for those cognitively impaired, is put them, introduce them to a new environment. That's that's almost always a bad move. My, my question was suggesting, and I should have been more clear, if you're very concerned at the, the, the number of infections or the increasing number of infections mm-hmm. uh, of the current facility, I guess the question is begged, what due diligence can you do to find an alternative that would be better recognizing the fact that if the patient or the family member is impaired cognitively, um, the answer is, is, is almost always no, because they will just not um, adapt well, their anxiety, depression, etc. So let me go to... Right. Um, well, I, I just, just to comment on that, please. I think if you do, if you are concerned, I mean, obviously, you know, here in, in Massachusetts, we've had some issues with the soldiers' home. And I feel that there's been some communication issues and, um, and, and some of the fallout from this is staffing. You know, is there enough staff at the facility? So that would be a question I would ask if you're going to move someplace else. How is the staffing? Uh, a, a question before I would, you know, have my dad go to the soldier's home is what changes are they making? Are they making positive changes 
so I could have my father go there. Um, same if you're in a facility, is the, the new facility, what was their response? And um, if their response is better than where you your family member is now, then you may make that decision to move them um, just like we would if, if our family member was miserable at one facility and the rapport with with your your residents between staff and residents is better than where it was before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Let me go to, and I'll combine these in this, uh, since they're similar questions, can, let's just assume they're uh, the POA or health proxy. Can the family member with, with that legal uh, definition, can they refuse to have their family member tested for COVID-19 or if their family member is suspected of or tests actually positive for the virus, can the family member um, refuse, um, or is it, are they, phrased another way, required to accept um, the facility transferring them to a hospital? So, you know, the the uh, one, I guess I'm not sure why anyone would refuse to have their family member tested. Um, Maybe there's religious reasons, maybe there's other reasons, but I'm not sure for the health and safety of of your family member why you would refuse. The question as to whether or not you can refuse them going to a a hospital um, versus remaining at the facility to be treated, I am not sure if that issue has really been addressed. The, uh, from what I have understood is when a resident was so ill, there was an immediate transfer to these facilities and the family members didn't even know. And again, mm-hmm. it goes back to the lack of communication. It goes back to a lack of a plan or procedure. So if we look at this, you know, going forward and there is a possibility of this happening again, maybe there's more room to have a dialogue for you to say to the staff, listen, if, if my loved one is, is infected and you're going to be transferring him or her to uh, a nurse, I mean, to a hospital for treatment and we can't get there and they don't know the environment, we don't want them. Treat them, make them comfortable, let them stay here. Without that dialogue, I'm not sure in the past if that was even considered. Okay, thank you. I, I can say my personal experience for the first question is it's been my mother's wishes not to be tested and the her wishes are as well uh, not to be hospitalized um but you know and I, and I know your mom is more in in congregate living than in a a uh, a nursing home sure so um she has the cognitive ability to be in her room uh to know that she can't go out and mingle and um, you know, has a private private caregiver. I'm I'm thinking that that decision may be different than somebody who is actually in a a nursing home or assisted who, living. Correct. Yes. yes. You know who who doesn't have that. Well, assisted living might be a little bit different also because you know hopefully they they are cognizant enough of being able to stay in their room and knowing the importance of social distancing. Mm-hmm. It, it's really where the um, you know, so I think there has to be a different difference as to the level of care and whether or not 
they've had a conversation with their family members before, especially as far as treatment goes. You fortunately had that conversation with your mom and you're able to continue having that conversation. There are people that, you know, didn't anticipate this, never had that conversation. And again, looking at this going backwards, there was not a lot of communication between the facilities when these decisions were made to put people in the hospital as opposed to keeping them at the nursing homes. Nursing homes weren't prepared for it. Maybe going forward, there will be a, a better plan in place for nursing homes to be able to have the funds, have the, the medical equipment to take care of, of the um, family members that are in the facilities. It also goes back to the fact of do the nursing homes have access to the proper amount of PPE equipment that would be necessary to take care of these residents in the facilities without having to put them in a nursing home? I mean, in a, in in a, a hospital. hospital. Correct. Right. Right. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of variables or questions uh, here that become begged in any of these, in all of these scenarios. Let me, let me just ask, and this is sort of the, the catch-all question, to try to uh, either prevent a decision the family or the family caregiver or POA provide views uh, as adverse, uh, whatever that happens to be. Um, my question for you most generally here is what, what advanced care plans or planning uh, can or should family givers uh, make? And this again goes to maybe the next time or even still that's possible relative to uh, the current pandemic. Uh, say their their family caregiver to date is safe. However, of course, in these situations, at least in theory, there's always a chance uh, for the virus to spread, and they test positive. But relative to what what's a what's your answer, or what might you advise or suggest family caregivers relative to uh, attempting to what would what would be de facto an advanced care plan? Well, you know. Um... My dad is 93. He lives at home. Um, my brother lives with him. But it is a conversation that we are having now is what if this lasts for a prolonged period of time? Mm-hmm. The concern is uh, would we put him somewhere if he got the virus? How would we take care of him? The, you know, would, would the four children and some of the grandchildren stay and, and take care of him? Um, is that wise? So um, it, for advanced planning, I, I think you have to kind of go to the conversation you had with your mom. Would she want to be tested? And if she tested positive, would she want to go to a facility? Um, does she want to be treated so to see if she gets better? Um, what What is your family member's quality of life and what do they want uh, mm-hmm. for, for prospective treatment? The the most important thing is if you can have the conversation with your family members, you want to have a conversation with them about maybe even about this current situation and what their thoughts are about it. And if it continues for a period of time, how would they look at it? Because it's very hard for you as a child to make a medical decision for your parents, especially if you've not had any conversation with them. So one of the most important things is to plan, and you plan by saying, as as the the family member, this is the, you know this is where I've been in my life. This is what I've seen. If this happens to me, I would would want you to take these precautions, or 
um, or if you had to put me into a, a nursing home, the the scary part with that is you know the risk is is worth of getting treated. So I guess I'm I'm kind of rambling there, but I I think the the most important thing as the the if you know you have been named as an agent on a power of attorney or a healthcare proxy, primarily a healthcare proxy, you need to have a conversation with your principal as to what they would want for future care, as in any situation. Uh, life or death, and now we we have pandemics to be concerned with. Right. Clearly, you want to honor their preference. You want to learn their preferences and attempt to, at best, is possible, honor their preferences. Correct. I will say just, and I'm certainly not advising this for any listener, but relative to my mother's situation, uh, beyond not wanting to be tested and not wanting to be hospitalized. Her preferences are she wants to be palliated or just receive palliative care, not as if there's a cure for uh, this virus, but to receive comfort care as otherwise termed. And what we've right. decided as a family is that if if her residence um, becomes increasingly uh, uncomfortable because of inadequate PP, whatever, um, and they want to or insist on wanting to transfer to a hospital, our decision was to bring her to uh, my home, mm-hmm. and then I would live here alone with her uh, while she receives hospice care. So that's right. what we decided for ourselves. That, that was what, those were her preferences. Again, I'm not recommending them, but I'm only noting them as, you know, this, this there's there can be options. Preferably, you're blessed if you have as many options as possible, um, but there are options that could include that scenario. Um, again, I think it depends, as you suggest, basically on the conversation and honoring as best we can uh, the frail um, or the family members' uh, preferences. With that, I, I, I do have one last question uh, for you, Mary, and that mm-hmm. is if and when, and leaving aside um, more routine matters of attorneys facilitating or providing power of attorney documentation, or et cetera. What's your general uh, advice if and when a family member just becomes, say, overwhelmed or is just uncertain how to proceed? Um, how might they usefully use or engage an attorney in this general situation? So one of the uh, difficult parts here is as the attorney, you have to decide who your client is. And if you are working with, in my case, I'm working with the parents and the parents' health declines and they're in a facility. And now the uh, child who's the agent on the power of attorney needs guidance. I can certainly provide that guidance. Um, The way I typically do it is I, I tend to look at what the parent's wills and objectives were and then try to guide the child in that way our office can set up payment of bills so that if that's overwhelming the uh, agent on the power of attorney we can certainly help organize that Um, the 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 difficult part is i like to know the parent i like to be involved in that part and when someone comes to me that I don't know and I'm dealing with a, um, a power of attorney that I didn't draft or that I don't know the, the parents involved, 
you have to be on a very fine line of defining who your client is. And if the child comes to me as the agent on the power of attorney, technically still my, my client is the parent because that's who the, um, the agent represents. So whatever the um, agent on the power of attorney does, it's going to affect the parents as well as anybody else. I don't know if that's the uh, if I'm making sense there, but it's it we can do whatever we can to help, but we have to make it clear who the client is. And I, I appreciate the point. The primacy here is on recognizing that that the client, despite being approached by the family member, is is really um, the parent or grandparent, uh, the the ill family member, who's expecting. Uh, that their wishes be honored um, right. and respected. So thank you for right. that. So a complicated subject, uh, Mary, but I appreciate at least this introduction. Um, you know, most of the effort is, is asking the correct questions or knowing what questions to ask. So I hope we made some progress in that um, regard. These answers can't be predicted or baked, um, but they have correct. to be. Uh, we have to be smart enough to know to ask them. So I thank you for this, and I th- I think you're absolutely right. Your early point. This is going to go on for some time, so maybe we revisit this, this subject uh, as we have more experience several months down the road, and see if we can add to this conversation. But for this, thank I you think again. That's good. You're welcome. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others. To see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.